0: And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord, Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he was commanded. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them, These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. How do we live by
1: faith? We know the grand answer to that question. We know that it's by faith in what God accomplished for us in Christ that we have life, eternal life. So we know the big answer living in the presence of God, living in heaven, having peace with our creator, which is, by the way, an amazing thing because of what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. So we have life, eternal life by faith. But I'd like to look at it more, you might say, microscopically today. How do we actually live by faith day by day? How does faith move me day by day in every step I take? How does my faith in Christ, and this is in particular what I want to look at, how does my faith in Christ change the way I respond to the stresses of the day? How does it change the way I respond to the annoyances, the irritations of people, the evil that is around me and the evil that might be done to me? How does trusting in God's word, how does trusting in his promises change our responses to what's happening around us? So we've been looking at Moses and the people of Israel. Here is Moses, who is almost at the finish line after 40 hard years of leading the people of Israel. It's been a tough slug. He's cried for them, he's prayed for them, and they in response have over and over criticized him and they've rejected his leadership and they've called him foolish. And right at the finish line, Moses stumbles. That's our text. It's actually not even clear what happened, is it? As you read this text, it just seems such a small issue. But God says that this act of Moses that's described in our text is sufficient so that Moses will never enter the promised land. So I want to preface this with God's own words in Deuteronomy and just listen to these really poignant words of God in Deuteronomy chapter 32. I'll begin reading at verse 48. The Lord spake to Moses the very same day, saying, Go up to this mountain of the Abirim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and look at the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the sons of Israel for possession. Then die on the mountain where you ascend, and be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. Because you broke faith with me in the midst of the sons of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the sons of Israel. For you shall see the land at a distance, but you shall not go there, not go into the land which I am giving into the sons of Israel. This is the word of God in response to what happened in the text that we read from Numbers chapter 20. I'd like to ask three questions. What led to this stumble of Moses? What matters to God? And then, well, what are we to learn from this? Why is this text preserved for us through all these ages? So what led to this stumble? This didn't happen in a vacuum. So I'd like us to think about Moses the man Let's not overly spiritualize this. Let's just look at what he was facing, the same things that you and I might typically face. It's been a long journey, 40 years of walking for a man who started this journey, by the way, when he was 80 years old. Let's just keep that in mind also. And the whole journey has been faced with criticism and opposition from the people that he was called to lead. A whole generation has almost disappeared by this point. The generation listed in Numbers 1, the generation that refused to trust God's promise. The generation that refused to move forward by faith in God's promise to clear the land, even if there were giants there, and make a home for them there. The generation that lacked faith was judged, and God said none of them would ever enter the promised land. And now there's a new generation that's arising. They're listed in Numbers chapter 26. And the question is there in Moses' mind, will this generation move forward by faith in God's promises? And as we saw last time, there's some doubts in Moses' mind. He's not sure. He's not sure that there'll be any different. So what was his emotional state? That's what I'd like to look at. What was happening in his heart? You know and I know that in our lives, what opens the door to sin so often is the turmoil, the emotional turmoil that's happening inside. So there's... A couple of things. Let's begin with some words that are easy to overlook at the very beginning of this chapter. Verse 1, the whole congregation comes to the wilderness of Zin in the first month and the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam died there and was buried. Moses' sister dies. This is his older sister, the one who watched over him since he was a baby, the one who took the wicker basket put it in the Nile River, remember, to protect Moses because Pharaoh said all the male children were going to be killed. This is the sister who was a partner in helping to lead the people of Israel. This is the sister who led all of the people of Israel in a song of praise that maybe she had composed when the armies of Egypt were defeated. And now she's dead. She's gone. She'll never see the promised land. And it's interesting that there's not much said about her, is there? That's it. She died here and she was buried. Let's move on. I think that's the way most people are around us. Although I'm sure they said words of condolences to Moses and to Aaron. But at the end of the day, we know that the sharpest grief is felt by those who are closest to the one who goes on. And therefore, every grief, in a sense, is private, isn't there? Every grief of this sort is very private. And so there was this grief that Moses was harboring in his heart. So we don't know between verse one and two how many days passed after the funeral, after the burial, and really it doesn't matter because it's not a matter of time when this grief is in us. It's not as though, well, five days have passed, let's move on. No, he's grieving, he's vulnerable, he's broken when the people now come to him. Again, criticizing, telling him he was all wrong. Why? Why did you bring us here? What's wrong with you, Moses? There's no figs here. There's no pomegranates. There's not even water here, they say. Kind of a foolish leader, are you? And so there's emotional turmoil in Moses' life. And I think there's some indications of that. Verse 6, then Moses and Aaron came In from the presence of the assembly, let's get away from them, (laughs) to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. They fell on their faces. The idea of falling on their faces, isn't that a picture of being overwhelmed, overburdened, overtaken by what's happening around them? Can't handle this anymore, Lord. Their emotions were raw. And then what happened, what the words they said and the actions that came out were, wow, how can we say? They came out of that raw cauldron of emotions. Look at verse 10 in chapter 20. All of a sudden, he just lets loose all the pent-up rage and grief that he's felt. Maybe the rage that's been building up for 40 years and the grief which is very fresh. He says in verse 10, And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, Listen now, you rebels! Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? And in that outpouring of his emotion, the details of the word of God were drowned out. He's sort of on autopilot in what happens next. He's not really thinking about what God had specifically commanded him to do. He's just saying, let's get this over with. And I think it's hard to blame him, at least for me. It's hard to blame him. In his rage and in his grief, he hit the rock Twice with his rod, it says. I don't think it was tick-tick. I think it was like a baseball bat. You know, wham, wham. He was mad. He was angry. He was broken. You want water? I'll give you water. Fed up. I don't know how you respond. How do you respond to pressure? How do you respond when you're broken, when you're criticized, when annoying and critical people fill your life? How do you respond to that? I think the punishment bothers us, right? Moses, because of what you did, you'll never enter the promised land. And yet, I think one reason it bothers us is because Moses' response is so human. It's so natural. I can see myself doing exactly what he did. Doesn't God understand? Doesn't God see the response of a grieving, hurting man who feels unloved and unappreciated and stressed out? So there's an environment when we ask what caused him to stumble, there's a reason, there's something happening in his heart because of the circumstances around him. So that's the second question, what mattered to God in this? What mattered to God? Why this punishment? So there's two questions I'd like to ask in this. The first is about us and the second is about God. What do we think is his sin? And I say we, meaning commentators for 2,000 years or more. Even if you go back to the rabbis of the Jewish faith, there's all kinds of commentary. What is his sin? What do we think? Well, there's a spiritual meaning, we think. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, it says explicitly that the rock that followed them was Christ. There's a symbolism here. In fact, in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32, several times... Moses refers to God as the rock of salvation. In fact, he refers to the idols that others worship as rocks that are no good in comparison to the rock of salvation. And so, in some way, symbolically, this may have been a dishonoring of God and his perfect provision for all his people. I think that's a possibility. Here's another possibility. It says he struck the rock in verse 11. Now, you may recall that this is actually the second time that God has given water to his people out of a rock. The first time was almost 40 years earlier. It's in Exodus chapter 17. And at that occasion, it's interesting, God specifically told Moses to strike the rock, but that's not what he said here. Here he said, speak to the rock. God's words matter. You see, God's words matter. The specifics, the details matter, but Maybe not to Moses in his rage and in his emotional state. And so he doesn't speak to the rock, but he strikes the rock. Maybe there's a third possibility. In verse 10, when he's yelling at the people, calling them rebels, he says, we will give you water. We. He's taking credit for a provision that is clearly from God. He directs attention to himself rather than to the Lord. I think all these things are there in the text, and all these things are showing us aspects of his sin. But there's something behind all these things, and that leads to the second question. What did God see as his sin? So we have our guesses, and I think there might actually be other guesses also. In fact, I know there are, but what did God see as his sin? Here's what God says. It was in Deuteronomy 32, but here it is again, verse 12 of chapter 20 in Numbers The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. You see what he says? There's two things. It's even more clearly divided out in Deuteronomy 32: two things that God sees as mattering profoundly in this issue. First, because you have not believed, see, the issue is faith. God was looking at the faith of Moses. I don't know if this surprises you. It shouldn't because all through the Bible, Old and New Testament, God's eyes are always focused on faith. It says the just shall live by faith, which is in the Old Testament and then again in the New. Abraham was justified by faith. And because he had faith in God, he took some amazing Risky, you might say, steps of obedience, but they weren't risky for him because he trusted the promise of God. He acted on faith. And these people were judged. They were doomed to wander for 40 years. Why? Because they lacked faith in the promise that God would clear the land and give it to them. God's eyes are always on our faith. Do you trust the Lord? Do you trust his word? Do you trust his promises? So how did Moses hear exhibit disbelief. I think we can look at it and draw some conclusions, and there might be others also. Faith, of course, is trusting. If we trust in God, we have to trust in his word. It goes hand in hand. Faith is trusting in God's word, and that's, that lack of trust is seen behind the actions of Moses. God said, speak, and Moses struck the rock. Faith means exalting God because we see him As God, Moses, on the other hand, seemed to have a hunger to affirm himself at the expense of God. Shall we give you water? Faith is bowing before the majesty of God. Faith is trusting in God's word even when our emotions are yanking hard in the other direction. So faith is quietly following the commands of God. Even when we want to lash out and scream or when we want to quit and say, I've had it with you people. Moses said, you rebels, instead of that quiet affirmation, I trust you, Lord. I'll act on what you tell me to do rather than what I feel like doing. It's an act of faith. So his faith faltered in response to the pressures of the moment, the way his emotions were stirred up because of everything that was happening in his life. And so the second complaint of God is that before the eyes of the people or in the presence of the people, God's Holiness was profaned. You see, he was the leader. God had appointed him to lead the people of Israel. And right from the beginning, the people were called to follow him on the basis of a promise of God, trusting in a promise of God. You can read about it. Way back when he came to the people of Israel in Exodus 4, it was with a promise of God to deliver them, to liberate them. It was a call of faith. He was the leader. And so this is someone whose faith was on display before the entire congregation. And it's God's way of shepherding his people, by the way. This is not unusual. If you read Philippians 3, verse 17, for example, Paul says you should have examples, godly examples that you can follow. Read Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 and 17. It says, follow the example of those who lead you. It's the way God leads and shepherds his people. James chapter 3, on the other hand, warns leaders. It says, be careful, don't many of you be teachers. In other words, don't many of you occupy that office because you're going to face the harsher judgment. Isn't that what we're seeing here? Because he's a leader, he's on display. His faith is on display. This was serious in God's eyes. Friends, if you lead, I don't care if it's at home, at work, in church, in a ministry. If you lead in a school, anywhere you lead, people are watching you watching how you trust God when the stress goes up, how you handle your private emotions and how you handle those external pressures that come to you because God wants you to be an example in that situation. There's a special obligation on those who lead. And I think that's the reason for this punishment. It's not just about Moses here, you see, but it's for the people to see and to remember the enormity of disbelief because this was serious in God's eyes. So just to show you how serious it was, would you, if you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy. the very beginning, there's this prayer which is of Moses which is almost unbelievably sad. Deuteronomy 3.23, Moses wants to be forgiven of this sin. Look what happens. 3.23, I also pleaded with the Lord in that time, saying, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Let me, I pray, cross over and see the fair land that is beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. The Lord was angry with me on, on your account. Moses is talking to the people of Israel. And would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, Enough! Speak to me no more of this matter. Go up to the top of Mount Pisgah. Lift up your eyes to the west and the north and the south and the east and see it with your eyes, for you shall not cross over this Jordan. See what Moses is saying? The people were atrocious. Look at the things they've done over and over and over again. And you forgave them over and over when I interceded for them. I prayed for them, and you said I would show them mercy. Now, Lord, please, how about a little mercy for me? And God says, Nope, nope. And I don't want to hear about this anymore. Don't pray this prayer anymore. Doesn't this remind you of Paul, Second Corinthians, the twelfth chapter? Three times he prays, three times, Lord, remove this thorn from me. And God says, Nope. Three times he said, no. Nope. But God said something else to Paul. He said, but my grace is enough. My grace is sufficient for you. And I think that's what's happening here. I know this punishment bothers us, but think about this. God's grace is large, and in comparison to his grace, this punishment is tiny. It seems to us like a total loss. Man, 40 years. He's been waiting and waiting and waiting in one little stumble, and it's taken away from him you can't go. I don't care how much you pray, you can't go. But consider this, for all the generations that follow, Moses is remembered, I'm quoting, as one who spoke to God face to face as friend speaks to friend. Think about this, in Hebrews 11 verse 26, it says that Moses looked forward to his real reward, which was the Messiah. That was his promised land. Consider this, that God received Moses into his presence in fact in the gospels we see that Moses and Elijah appeared with the lord jesus christ on the mount of transfiguration did he lose out you see this was like the blink of an eye whether he goes into promised land at age 120 or not it's like a toddler if you put him in a time out chair it's not a life sentence what if he said oh what's the point of living my whole life is shot now no Come on, sit there for five minutes and get it over with. This was nothing compared to the grace that God was giving him. Like Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, Moses wasn't left out of God's grace, but he got what was sufficient. I'm going to give you a glimpse of that land. Go up to Mount Pisgah and stand there. It's all you need until you receive your real reward, which is reserved for you in heaven. What mattered to God? What mattered to God? His faith. Faith matters to God. So what do we learn? This is the last point. What do we learn? Well, that's it. God is looking for faith. Not just in the big matters of salvation. Yes, that's what he's looking for. Eternal life is for those who believe in the Son, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But friends, he's looking for faith in each step. He's looking for faith in our responses to the stresses of the day. How we walk step by step. In faith in him. He's looking for faith. Do I trust him? That's the question. When you're being pressured to respond, do I trust his word now? Do I trust his promise in this moment? That's the question that matters. And that governs, yeah, the big issues like salvation and heaven and hell, but it affects the way I live in a sinful world full of annoyances and irritations and evil. Do I trust him now? How do I respond? Faith governs our responses. You know, we can't avoid irritations. Moses couldn't avoid irritations. This was his appointed task, but we can respond in a way that exhibits our faith in God and in his word and in his promises. And that's what God wants. It's our response. Often our emotions are just raw and boiling, you know, like a cauldron full of all kinds of poisons. And they're strong. They govern our actions. They cloud our thinking. We know that. It happens all the time. And God's call is to develop a habit of trusting his commands in those moments. To listen to his commands and his voice when our emotions seem to be screaming at us. So think about it. Emotions are strong when, well, when you're having an argument with your spouse. Maybe it's more than an argument. This is something important to both of you. and You just can't put it off anymore. You're screaming at each other, but at that moment, faith also flares up. The voice of God is also heard clearly. What words does God command me to use right now? What does Ephesians 4 say? Words which are gracious. Words which build up. Words which are fitting. All right, I have to obey. I sure don't feel like obeying. I know what I want to say trusting in God's word, I'm going to do what he wants me to do. The habit of trusting in God's word, living by faith. Young people are racked with pain and frustration. I know young people may be feeling it now. All of us remember it. It was a tough time trying to grow up, feeling controlled, feeling like every step is controlled by someone else when we have a pretty clear idea inwardly of where we want to go. And sometimes those emotions, those pent-up emotions, just make us want to scream out. But then faith calls us. Faith says, yeah, but what does God want you to do? I know what your emotions are telling you to do. If you trust God to bless you, what is he calling you to do? Oh, yeah, honor those who are over me. Honor those even at work who are over me. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. It's the response of faith. In home, in family, work, church, how do I live out my faith here and now when my emotions are boiling over, they feel irresistible, how do I walk by faith? I think the loss of faith in those situations begins slowly. I think the first time someone irritates you, someone does something annoying or evil, you just want to lash out, but you say, nope, that's not the thing that would please the Lord, so I'm not going to do it, so you bury it down deep. Do you know what it's like? It's like embers that are burning. I don't know if you have a wood stove or a campfire. If you put ashes over them, they stay hot for a long time. And then when you add some wood, some fuel to that, the wood flames up because the fire is still there. And I think that's what happens to our emotions. They're buried, but they're ready to flame up when new fuel is added. So the next time it happens, we're more likely to flare up and we flare up more quickly because the fire is just waiting for the fuel. But the remedy is not just bear the emotions, but it's a habit of faith. It's developing, growing, maturing in this habit of trusting God's promises and trusting God's commands more than our emotions. I will do what God wants me to do. May I give you some examples? Saul was chasing David up and down through the wilderness. David was living in caves and in ravines and in valleys. And then he had, actually more than once, a perfect occasion to kill Saul. Saul was the king. He could have killed him. His troubles would have been over. But you know what David says, for example, in 1 Samuel, the 24th chapter, he says, I'm not going to do it because he was trusting in the wisdom and the goodness of God which demanded that David honor the one that God had anointed I will not touch God's anointed he said he knew what he wanted man his knife was ready maybe his hand was already on the handle but no i'm going to trust God's word i'm called to obey that's all in 1st Timothy chapter 2 at the very end especially verse 23 it says that Jesus was struck he was insulted he was beat Treated unjustly. I don't know what you'd do if you were in that situation. I know I would want to hit back twice as hard, just like Moses hit that rock. But here's what it says that Jesus didn't hit back. He didn't even try to hit back, but instead, this is critical. He trusted God as a righteous judge. He says, I know what God is doing. He said, vengeance is his, and he's right here. He's taking notes, he's watching everything, he's remembering everything, and he'll take care of it. And I'm going to believe God's word that says, don't take vengeance, because that belongs to God. It's the response of faith. We forgive, third example. We forgive because we know how desperately we need to be forgiven, and we know that the two are connected. Why? Because we read it in God's word. And when we read the words of Jesus in Matthew 6 and in Matthew 18 that connect the two, we read them and we tremble. If you don't forgive your brother or sister from your heart, neither will your father forgive you. And we say, oh, wow, I don't feel like forgiving this miserable so-and-so after everything she's done to me. Boy, I better. Boy, I better. It's the response of faith. It's trusting in what God's word says. 1 Peter 3, verse 15 says that when you're suffering, when, because you're persecuted or maybe for other reasons, but specifically when you're persecuted, that's when your faith will shine because you trust God's promises in those moments and it fills you with a shining hope, an unusual hope. So unusual that your neighbors come to you and ask you for the reason for that hope. So that all the stresses and the pressures and the persecution around you, you're responding By faith in God's promise. It's the response of faith. Faith. God looks for faith. Hebrews 11, what does it say? It's impossible to please God without faith. Impossible. Impossible. And not just in the grand things, but step by step. How do we bring pleasure to God? So don't let your faith in God's word for each step be buried and lost in a storm of emotions. That's what I learned That's what we learn from this text. Frances Brown was born in Ireland in 1816. As a young child, she contracted smallpox and lost her eyesight. She was called the Blind Poet of Ulster. In one poem, she imagines a band of travelers who are sitting around at the beach telling stories of loss, of heartache, of grief. One lost his family as... The ship went down at sea. Another speaks of a grave where his bride is buried, but the grave is on a far off shore. Another speaks of a child who died when he was young. And they go on like this. Finally, one last one speaks of his loss. And this makes all the other losses pale in comparison. What was it? What was this loss that is worse than losing, wow, your wed bride or a child or a family, the pilgrims hush their mouth. They say, what you have is worse. Here's how the poem closes. However it came to thee, thine stranger is life's last and heaviest loss. For the believing heart has gone from thee. He lost his faith, lost that trust in God. That's the worst thing. As it's the one thing that God looks for that, Pleases God, so it's the last thing that we want to lose, the last thing we want to lose. God looks for faith always. So here's a call to trust God and His word and how we respond, even when our emotions are stirred up like a storm at sea. Trust God. Obey that. Even when you're sad, when you're under stress, when you're attacked, when you feel unloved and forgotten and unwanted, still. walk by faith, step by step obey him. Amen. Oh Lord God, glory to your name. Your word is true. It's not just that you're a tyrant demanding, demanding that we obey and then raining down harsh punishment because some minor infraction is incurred. Lord, you're a gracious God who leads us in the way of life through your word. You tell us to trust you and obey you. Because that's what blesses us. That's what makes our life fruitful. And Lord, we want to confess that as the faith of our heart, our understanding of who you are, our belief of who you are, our trust of who you are, our creator who loves us, who redeemed us, who carries us day by day, and who will bless us in this life and in the life to come. In your precious name, amen. We know, we know how to trust God for the big things. Praise God, and I hope all of you have done that. Trusted God for forgiveness of sins and life eternal in Christ Jesus. But because we trust Him, we also walk after Him. Step by step, we follow His words. So my benediction is this, that when your emotions are in turmoil, may His commands come to you with such clarity and force, and may His promises come to you with such warmth that you run to obey Him.